You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. The last two weeks, we've been looking at the two of the most profound statements that Jesus ever made publicly about himself. Firstly, that he is the provider of living water and also that he is the light of the world. That's John 7 and uh, second half of John 7 and early in John chapter 8. These claims were made at the Feast of Tabernacles. That feast is so popular that Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem multiplies some 20 times over around about just for that week. Huge crowds heard his claims. And it caused confusion and division amongst them, as we heard. Some thought he might be the prophet that Moses promised, the same prophet that the woman that the world concluded he must be. Some thought he must be the Christ, the Messiah, and believed in him. Some thought he was a deceiver, a fraud, and rejected him. Some even accused him of being demon-possessed. And the religious leaders, of course, concluded that he was a dangerous and a blasphemous troublemaker. And they determined to see him put to death. They even sent temple police to arrest him. But they came back empty-handed, declaring no one ever spoke like this man. So anyway, on with our text. If you've got your Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 8. In one of the most loved stories of the Bible, the story of the woman caught in adultery. But there's a problem, because your Bible may not even have it there. Some Bibles omit this passage entirely and they leave a blank space in its place. Some put it in a footnote at the bottom of the page. Others have it in brackets with a note explaining the reason why. About the only one I could find on a fairly quick search that contained the story without some sort of note or explanation was the message paraphrase. So what's going on here? Why would one of the most encouraging stories in the Bible be missing or even sidelined in so many Bibles. There's a number of reasons why that may be the case. The first and the most significant is that this doesn't appear in the earliest and best manuscripts of John's Gospel until about the 6th century. Early commentators and the early church fathers don't refer to it in their writings either. Bible scholars have also concluded that it almost certainly wasn't written by John. The style and the choice of words are unlikely to be John's, and they seem to match better with Matthew or Luke, and some manuscripts, in fact, place it at the end of Luke 21. Or if it does belong in John's Gospel, it would seem to be in the wrong place, and seems that it would fit better in John after John 7.36, where it's found in some of the old manuscripts and just before Jesus talks about the living water. There's no doubt that it does, at first glance, look to be in an odd place at the beginning of John 8. It does seem to interrupt the flow of events during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, all this is a bit of a worry, especially for preachers who are careful to preach only the inspired Word of God. Is this passage a part of God's Word? Or isn't it? Let's read the passage in question first. We'll go back a few verses earlier to John 7 verse 50 and we'll go one verse beyond so you can see how it sort of fits or doesn't fit. John 7.50 tells us that Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the Pharisees, said to them, 
Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They each went to his own house. This is the passage in dispute. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in them in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if this wasn't written by John, and if it's not in the most reliable manuscripts, why would I preach on it? For starters, the the fact is that almost every Bible published has it in there in some form. It's either in brackets or it's in there in footnotes. That tells me that people much smarter than me are not confident enough that it isn't genuine to exclude it. Then there's the fact that Bible scholars are almost unanimous that this event did occur. And they are almost unanimous that this story comes straight from the mouth of one of the original apostles. The hesitation is not about if it happened, but about who the author is, when it happened, and where it belongs in the Gospels. Certainly there's nothing inconsistent about how this presents Jesus, and there's nothing in there that contradicts any biblical teaching. In fact, it's precisely what we would probably expect from Jesus in a situation like this. Finally, Papias, a 2nd century bishop who was a disciple of the Apostle John, does make a reference in his writings to an event where a woman caught in many sins is brought to Jesus. Most Bible scholars believe Papias is referring to this specific event. Presumably, he heard about it straight from John's mouth. Now, I'm no Bible scholar, but there are a couple of comments I want to add as to why I think it's Holy Spirit inspired and so why I'm preaching on it. Seems to me that the wisdom that Jesus displays here is not something that could have been thought up by a merely human author out of his imagination. Think about it. Which one of us would come up with such a clever and penetrating response as Jesus did? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That reminds me of another sharp response from Jesus, a response to another attempt by the Pharisees to trap him. It's another one I doubt that a human author would come up with. You'd remember the account 
It's recorded in all three of the other Gospels of the Pharisees coming to Jesus with their hypocritical flattery. And they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. That much we know is true, at least. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus then said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marvelled at him. Truly the wisdom of Jesus is far beyond earthly wisdom. There are other reasons too. While it seems to sit awkwardly here, it does set up the rest of the chapter. For it leads into Jesus' great statement about light and darkness, into his words about true and false judgment, and into the repeated phrase, die in your sins, that reflects back on the sin of both this woman and her accusers. It also means that chapter 8 opens with a threat to stone the woman to death and closes with an attempt to stone Jesus. There's a nice symmetry to it. That's enough background. Let's have a closer look at the event itself. I'm working on the assumption here that it did happen during the feast. If the religious leaders wanted to trap Jesus and discredit him, what better time to do it than when there are huge numbers of people present, and especially when they've set a trap that is sure to catch their quarry. Jesus spends the night at the Mount of Olives, a favourite place for him to go to pray, to talk to his father and to sleep and to rest while he's in Jerusalem. He returns to the temple in the morning and the crowds again come to hear and teach. And the religious leaders, confident that they can finally catch Jesus out and destroy his reputation, drag this poor woman into the middle of the crowd and stand her before Jesus. Now, don't want us to brush over this too quickly. This is a truly human story, and we do well to step into the shoes of the main characters for a moment. Seems pretty obvious that from this account that this is a setup, and that she is a victim. Now, she's not an innocent victim, to be sure, but she's their victim. She's about to become their sacrificial lamb. How did they catch her? She was caught in the middle of the very act of having sex with a man who was not her husband. How did they know what was going on? Were they hiding in the cupboard or peeping through the keyhole? Did they wait outside the door until they heard the right noises coming from the bedroom before they barged in? Or was there a prearranged signal so that when the man that she was committing adultery with called out, they all rushed in? and seized her in triumph, while letting him go. You have to ask, why didn't they also drag him before Jesus? Because after all, adultery is not an individual sport. There are always two people involved. There's something rotten about this, for sure. John 8.4 tells us the teacher... This woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What would you say? The law of Moses is clear. Any form of sexual relationship outside of marriage 
carries the death penalty. Deuteronomy 22 spells it out pretty clearly when it tells us, If a young woman is found to not be a virgin when she marries, then they shall bring out the young woman, and they shall stone her to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman, and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, and then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, and the man, because he violated his neighbour's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man shall die. It's there in black and white in the law of Moses. There's no argument about this. The penalty for sexual activity outside of marriage is death by stoning. It's a truly horrible way to die. And it's a punishment that's still meted out in some cultures, always to the woman, only occasionally to the man. At least the law of Moses provided mercy for a woman who's been raped. Sometimes we hear stories of innocent rape victims in other countries being stoned to death for their so-called sin. It's horrific and you can almost guarantee that it will only be the woman who suffers, not the man. It's ever been so. I remember as a young man that a young woman who slept around quickly got a reputation that was not very flattering. But when young men did the same thing, they were merely boys being boys and sowing their wild oats. Double standards have always applied. I grew up during the era of women's lib. That and the more recent feminist movements have done some wonderful things for women in terms of increased freedoms, better opportunities, greater respect and much more. Women are now able to report and escape from domestic violence in ways that just weren't available to them 50 years ago. But for every benefit it has provided for women, it's also brought terrible harm to women. I suspect that the sexualisation and exploitation and degradation of women has never been greater at any time in human history. It's a direct consequence of the supposed sexual liberation of women. And sadly, it's done more to enslave women than it has to free them. And men, we have ourselves to blame for this. We've failed to nurture and protect our wives and our daughters and our sisters from time immemorial. The self-righteous evil in the hearts of these Pharisees still lurks in the hearts of men. We want what we want, no matter who has to suffer to provide it for us. But getting back to this poor woman, can you imagine the humiliation, the shame, the terror she felt as they drag her out into public and set her before Jesus as their exhibit A? She knows what's coming. Death by stoning. She knows there will be no mercy shown dare say she's half naked too. I doubt whether they cared enough about her dignity to allow her to get dressed before her public humiliation and execution. 
fact, they don't care about her at all. They don't really care about her sin. They don't care about her embarrassment and her fear. They only care that they can finally discredit Jesus. They've set the perfect trap for him. There's no way out of this one. This woman is about to die just so they can make a point about Jesus. The injustice of it all shouts from the page at us. And it shouts all the more loudly because if these men were aware that she was about to commit adultery, their first response should have been to step in and warn her and prevent it, not wait until she was in the middle of the act. The law of Moses commanded that too. If they haven't done that, then they're complicit in her sin. But they have no interest in preventing adultery. That's not their goal. They intend to catch her in it. And Jesus has a strange response. In fact, his first response is not to respond at all. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. There's been plenty of speculation down through the centuries about why he ignored them and what he may have written in the dirt. Some people think he didn't know how to respond, so he was stalling for time, doodling on the ground while he thought of something to say. Some think uh, that he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13 in the dirt, which says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. That may be the case, given that Jesus has not long ago issued an invitation to all who are thirsty to come to him to drink from the fountain of living water. Could be that Jesus was writing the names of those involved in this perverse scheme to catch this woman out. Still others think he wrote down a list of the sins that the woman's accusers were guilty of. Pride, envy, greed, hate, lying, bearing false witness, entrapment. No doubt if that's what Jesus was doing, it would be a long list. Fact is, no one knows. The Holy Spirit has not seen fit to reveal to us what the Lord wrote. And that's because the point of the story is not about what he wrote in the sand. And it's not even primarily about the woman who's been caught. They continued to ask him, John 8, 7 says. They didn't just continue to ask him. They hounded him. They pestered him for an answer. For they just knew that whatever answer he gave, it would be wrong. If he replies, let her go, they'll accuse him of ignoring and rejecting the law of Moses. That will destroy any credibility he has as a teacher sent from God. No one will listen to Jesus after that. If he says stone her to death, then his reputation for compassion and mercy is shot. Everyone will know he's a hypocrite. And compounding the problem, if he answers stone her, then the Roman authorities will arrest him for inciting an execution. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, not the Jews. So they don't care how he answers because they know he's trapped. They know there is no way out of this. Can you picture the smug looks on their faces? They're besides themselves with delight 
They've got him now. They've got him finally. Or have they? As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Wow, hang on, where did that come from? They weren't expecting that. In fact, it comes from the very same law of Moses that they put, put such stock in. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three, it tells us in Deuteronomy 17, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now interestingly, Jesus doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't pretend that she hasn't broken the law. She's guilty as charged according to the law. And he didn't tell her accusers to ignore the law of Moses. Instead, he turned the law back around onto them. He told them to proceed with the execution if, if you are without sin, then you throw the first stone. Now that could have been a gamble, a gamble with this woman's life. What if one of them had arrogantly thought, I'm not a sinner, Jesus has just given me permission. After all, we know the Pharisees did believe that they weren't sinners. They were convinced that they were the ones righteous, the only ones righteous. Imagine that. If one of them had thought, I'm not a sinner and threw the first stone, you can picture the hailstorm of stones that would have followed. But that's not, all, not what happened at all. The silence was broken only by the swooshing of robes as all the men turned around to leave, beginning with the older men. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Is that because the older ones are more experienced and more self-aware of a lifetime of accumulated sin? Who knows? But as we get older we should certainly be less willing to believe in our own righteousness and much more willing to extend grace to others, simply because we've lived in our own skin for longer and we know our own faults and failures and sins. Anyway, all her accusers left, every single one of them. I reckon the crowd was still there, watching in hushed, hushed silence. After all, who isn't fascinated by a sex scandal? I don't think this was a gamble by Jesus. I don't think he was risking her life at all. He hears his father speak, and he only says and does what the father wants him to. So maybe the reason he bent down to write on the ground was to ask his father what to do. Now, I don't think there was any risk here at all to the woman. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't gambling with her life. He was setting her free. There was only one person there that day who was qualified to throw that first stone. And what does he do? Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. 
When he finally stands up again, all her accusers are gone. It's the first good thing they've done. But has Jesus let her off the hook lightly? Is he condoning adultery, as some people have claimed? For one thing, Jesus wasn't a witness to her sin, so he could bring no charge or judgment against her. Instead, he brings mercy and comfort to a woman humiliated and ashamed, and no doubt now repentant and grateful. Jesus can do that, because it won't be very long when he'll be offering up his life as a sacrifice for sins, just like this. Now, he doesn't condone sin here or anywhere else. Go and sin no more, he tells her. Make a clean break with your sin and never return to it. He said the same thing to the man he healed at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. See you are well, he told the man. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I wonder if this woman might be the same one who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her, her hair in Luke 7. Or maybe she's the one who poured out a jar of frighteningly expensive perfumed oil on the Lord to prepare him for burial in Matthew 26. We may never know, but either is a fitting response for a person who has received the sword of mercy that Jesus extended to this woman. Jesus is still the only sinless one, and he is still the only one who extends mercy. And he extends that mercy to you too. Have you heard his call to go and sin no more? Have you turned away from your sin and turned to him? I hope so. If you haven't, now is the time to do it. Maybe you've tried to live that sin-free life that he calls for, but found it impossible. If so, you are perfectly placed to cry out for and receive his mercy and forgiveness. Do that and there is no sin that he can't forgive. For God did not send his world, son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Just like this poor woman, you have nothing to bring to him except your brokenness and sin. And that is precisely what he offers to take from your shoulders and carry himself in what is often called the great exchange. Our sin is carried by him and his perfect righteousness is accounted to us. Jesus could forgive this woman because he would one day soon be carrying her sin on that cross. He can forgive you today too on the same basis. You won't find an offer like that anywhere else. Jesus offers you the chance to start again. Only Jesus can and will do that for you, if you come to him. For the law was given through Moses, it tells us at the start of John. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If you've already come to him in the past for mercy, it's easy to forget and become complacent about what he's done for you. 
it's easy to not really appreciate any more the amazing thing he has done. Let me remind you where you came from. For at one time, you were the adulterer. At one time, you were the Pharisee, filled with smug self-righteousness and judgment and hate. You were the one who deserved condemnation and death and hell. And he, Jesus Christ, carried that sin on your behalf, nailing it to the cross. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That, my friends, is the gospel. And that should stir our gratitude, our daily repentance, our love for him. It should stir amazement at our salvation. It should stir our worship. For this man, and this man alone, is worthy of worship. Should join me in prayer. Father, our hearts are just overcome with amazement at the wisdom of Jesus, at the grace and the mercy he extends, at his unlimited willingness to take on the guilt and the penalty and the punishment for our sin on that cross. to set us free, to cleanse us. Lord, as he has done for that woman that was caught, trapped, entrapped, you have done for us, Jesus, in bringing no charge against us because you have carried that charge yourself. Lord, would you, would you fill us with awe at the grace you have given us? And Lord, if there be any shred of pharisaical judgment and bitterness and hatred within us, Lord, would you flush that out by the power of your Holy Spirit and by your word. Lord, our desire is to recognise just how great our salvation is. Just how great it is, Lord, what you have set us free from and what you have set us free into. Lord, we pray for our friends, our family who don't yet know this grace that you offer. Lord, would you bring them face to face with Jesus in repentance and in faith, to hear him say, neither do I condemn you. Lord, we pray that you give us words to speak when we meet our friends and our family and our neighbours who don't yet know the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be 
your mouthpiece, your instrument to bring the good news of this gospel to them as well. Would you save them as you have saved us, Lord? And we will worship you all the days of our life. In the name of Jesus, your Son and our Saviour, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.